0: If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor.
1: First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use.
0: Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
1: And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership.
0: It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us.
1: Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Welcome to episode 8.5 of LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with...
0: Dr. Scott. Welcome back, folks. It's good to be hearing from you again because we're getting a lot more feedback we from are. our followers, which is really exciting.
1: Actually, today is a very exciting day. Yeah, it's a We're big... kind of on a high right now. Yeah,
0: I'm a little jittery.
1: <laughs> so uh, as everyone knows, today is the day that the Ron Burgundy podcast debuted. Yeah. And last night we got the news that his first episode would be the true crime episode featuring Dr. Scott. Yeah, so I'm <laughs>
0: I'm pretty much vibrant. I mean I this is a peak experience, like which is kinda sad, like to think it's <laughs> like, Stop okay. It! No, it's, no, it's like this is the peak experience and like I can be on my de- I can be an old man. At least oh. I was on Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I don't know why I don't know why as an old man I would suddenly have a weird Yankee accent. I but.
1: know. So give us a little bit of what it was like, the experience was like it, back in November now. Right. It it, do, it
0: does seem like a long time ago, and you were part of that. We we have a wonderful colleague over in Beverly Hills, Dr. Paula Bruce, who's a really, really well-known and respected um, forensic psychologist and has an entire practice that's all around forensic issues. And she happened to be on vacation, and the, the Will Ferrell, Ron Burgundy podcast – that was, you know, ramping up production, had called her and said, "We want somebody to come in and be a forensic psych." And Paula's like, "I can't do it, but let me check and see if I can get you a referral." And she texted me. I was like, "She didn't even finish the text. I was like, yes, I'll yes, do it. Yes, 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 please, please, I'll do it." <laughs> um, except that I said, like, I, I mean, I wanted to find out what it was. I mean, I wanted to make sure. Like, I, first thing I said was, "Look, uh, if you're expecting me to keep my shit together." In front of Will Ferrell doing Ron Burry. And that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. and, and they were really cool and said, no, that's not really it. You know, it's, it's – Just be
1: natural. You just
0: be natural. And, you know, if you laugh, you laugh. But it's more about him being absurd. And then they were really cool because they knew that you were my partner. And right? at, at one point it was going to be the two of us. And right. then, like, they really didn't
1: – Have it written that way yeah, to some extent. But
0: we both got to go to the recording studios it so and, and It was boy, so they're, fun. And boy, there there it's a professional setup.
1: Yes it is. <laughs> like it's a
0: Hollywood We're like, studio. What are we
1: doing here? Ooh, <laughs> no. there's snacks for us.
0: <laughs> it was like Bogart and those snacks like, "Hey, can I take these with me?"
1: Oh my gosh. No, it was so fun to just sit in the engineering room and watch it and listen to it and yeah, We just knew it was going to be awesome, yeah. and it's so hilarious. Yeah. You haven't even listened to it yet I haven't. <laughs> I
0: wanted to make sure that, like, you know, everybody that I trusted, you know, or, you know, at least a few people that are like, okay, they're it's they're approving. Not it's not going to be terrible, um, or I'm not going to come off looking silly.
1: Right. No, um, it's I, – I think even more than just it being exciting because we now have a podcast and it's a podcast is that even though it's hilarious, you're able to show your expertise <laughs> – and do I cuz
0: I don't remember I'm going to I'll listen to yes, it tonight. Okay. Yes, you do
1: and <laughs> you know you you could be this subject matter expert that goes on and talks in any arena about forensic psychology and which is a really cool Tie in because that's what this mini episode is going to be all about today. Right. So that's the only fun. difference
0: is is that you don't have Will Ferrell and his amazing producer Carolina mm-hmm. sitting across the table from you, and they're making themselves laugh and literally biting their hands and oh, turning away God, from the microphone because they're laughing so hard, <sighs> like that.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, they're they're pros. Yeah. And by the way, Carol, the entire staff was amazing. Anna. Um, yeah. Carolina, they were and treated us so well. In fact, I brought you your gift today. gave us like champagne. I know what the hell. I'll do I any know. free booze. And fancy I'm, candles. I'm in. Yeah, yeah,
1: yep.
0: And soap. Are they trying to tell us something? Like maybe we had a hygiene issue. I um, don't know. I think
1: because it's specifically rum soap.
0: Oh, it's not
1: scotch soap, but it's it's an alcohol based. God, oh, so that's
0: I'm going to stick <laughs> with that. So yeah, what let's we're doing supposedly a mini episode.
1: We'll see, how it we'll goes. see if We're we can keep it mini. But since we've been doing this podcast for over a year now, we have had so many inquiries into how we got into the field. Hey, I'm a student. I what should I look for? What's the field really about? And I think those are all wonderful questions. And I'm glad people are thinking that far ahead. Um but I thought maybe we would kind of share our stories about how we got into the field. Right. Because I don't think Either of us had this A to Z path planned out. No.
0: So. And you you made a good point too, because you went back and listened to our first episode, like to see how much of that we covered and you had the really great observation that we also, well. we also sounded like we had sticks up our butts. Yeah, so, for it took like
1: do do? a good ten minutes for us to I'm like, who are these people that we're listening to? This is so goddamn dry. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Come on now. Um, but then you crack some joke and we like loosen up and okay. it was much better. But, yeah, we we explored it a little bit there. Yeah. But um, we didn't really how, – how did you decide that you wanted to get a degree in this? And then how did you find your program?
0: So mine was – I had no, I I didn't know that this kind of thing really existed. I mean, other than, you know, we made the joke about B.D. Wong being a law enforcement psychologist on the crime shows. Right. And then, you know, uh, Clarice Starling in um, Silence of the Lambs being a profiler, but she's not a psychologist. She's a law enforcement specialist in this area. But I started out at the master's level. I had been working in entertainment and I had a great, great couple of decades in entertainment. I was really lucky to do some phenomenal things, but everything that I did you know out here in entertainment, there are wonderful jobs, and a lot of them are are ten what we call ten ninety nines they're contract jobs you can get no benefits mm-hmm. and I was at a point where I had not gone the executive route at a studio or a production company, and it was like oh i I need to make a decision so I had been pulled toward being a therapist, and I knew some friends that were, um, you know, marriage and family therapists and social workers in private practice. And I was like, I think this will be interesting. So – and I was really pushed by my own therapist. I was oh, really wow. in my own – doing my own work then, and yeah. which I felt weird. Like we had conversations like, Ralph, why are you pushing me? That's like how – I can't stand listening to myself talk. How am I going to listen to other people? And he pointed out some really – he made some really insightful comments about – what he knew of me as a person, and he said, "Look, just do this. Just go take an intro class. Take the intro class to the the MFT program and see what you think." So, ten minutes in to an introductory course, and I was like, "Sign me hooked. the hell up!" I was hooked yeah. because you feel like, especially as an adult going back to school, you know, I had I, I pushed my way with two degrees through my undergrad and really was hard charging then, but as an adult many years later to have all these different areas of your brain. It just felt like my synapses were crackling Mm -hmm, again. mm -hmm. And so then the problem is with any grad program in a soft science, in a way, is that you really don't know what questions to ask until you're three-quarters of the way through the program. So I get through this counseling program with really great education (laughs) and training on providing individual, couple, family, child evaluation, child treatment, family treatment, individual treatment. And, you know, I'm starting to find out like, "Mm, that doesn't really appeal to me. This part does, that part doesn't. And then um, I realized I don't want to do private practice that much. I like it, but I don't want to be doing it 40 hours a week. And I was going to Antioch Antioch, uh, University, uh, Culver City, and they announced that a doctoral program was opening in Santa Barbara. And the doctoral program had a, an emphasis in – it was a clinical psychology program with an emphasis in family forensics. Had not a clue what family forensics right. was. Even when they explained it to me, I was like, what? I yeah. not really – okay. Yeah. Um, but I decided to do it and then um, started that level of education, which was even you know farther and deeper. Started learning about forensics and had these fantastic professors that are sort of – the go-to psychologists in Santa Barbara County for custody evaluations mm. so our forensics was really that forensic program was the intersection of family forensics like family evaluation child evaluation for courts for like divorce for custody and then we did some like expert witness classes and stuff and that my brain was like oh this is amazing this is really cool Although I wasn't sure I wanted to be right in the middle of squabbling parents doing child evaluations, even though it's
1: it it
0: does to me, too. But it's really lucrative. I mean, if you want to do it, you can, you know, but you're going to have a lot of angry people coming at you from all directions. So thinking that I wanted to get away from that, I took a job at a prison when I graduated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a lot of angry people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and even before the prison, you and I met because we decided, you and I, weren't going to be doing halftime internships. We wanted to get it over with oh, and yeah. do full time yeah. for pretty much free. We we gave a year. I mean, we how many got hours? Five
1: hundred dollars the... a month, Scott. Oh, what are you that's talking right. About? We got
0: a stipend of five hundred a month. It
1: paid for my gas to downtown L.A. That's uh, pretty much it. Yeah,
0: maybe a couple of Subway sandwiches, maybe
1: <laughs> or it, KFC in
0: uh, oh KFC uh, in South Central, uh, South Central L.A. Yeah, but that was that's, that's another a, story. <laughs>
1: that's a story for another time.
0: Yeah, that's where I met you, and right. then. <laughs> After we finished our year, you and I remained friends, and I started commuting to Central California to work in a prison and work in what's called a forensic men's outpatient. So it was basically people who years ago would have been institutionalized in uh, uh, like a state psychiatric hospital, but they've committed enough crimes to where they're incarcerated. So it was a an incarcerated outpatient program and really got even more into the forensics there. But the the commuting killed me. So then I was able to get down here, work in the jail, work in, work in another large agency. Yeah. So that's how I got here.
1: So mine was much different. I wanted to stay in law enforcement and I had my eyes set on the FBI and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go get a doctorate because they can't turn me down if I have a doctorate. <laughs> it's such a competitive job.
0: Well, I'm also – like you've, you've told me the story before. My comment is always like that that was your go-to. Oh, I'm just going to go get a doctorate <laughs> as if it's like going and picking up, you yeah. know, soap at the corner store. You, right. Like, and you went to like an amazing, amazing program in Alliant.
1: I went to Alliant Los Angeles, and how I found them, this is kind of the funny part. (laughs) So, well, let me back up. So in undergrad, I took a legal psychology class. Do you remember when forensic psychology was called legal psychology?
0: No, uh, no, I don't even remember that.
1: So I was double majoring in psychology and criminal justice because I knew both those things interested me. There was enough classes that overlapped that getting a double major degree – Wouldn't have been taking that much more time. Um, But I took a legal psych class and loved it. Like you said, it was that sort of neuron firing, you know, moment. Um, And then I wanted to write a paper on criminal profiling. And I remember my professor saying, that doesn't really exist. It's not really a thing. Get your mind off of it.
0: Whoa. What year was this? (sighs)
1: Two thousand. 1999, 2000? That's odd. Kind of like it's far-fetched, which it is. It completely is. Like we said in our very first episode, you know, there's not many jobs for criminal profiling. But it's a thing, It is a thing. I mean, it's
0: not that it – I mean, so for him to say or her to say that it's not a thing is a little bit of a – Yeah. So
1: what did I do? I wrote a badass paper on it, found all the research I could on it, and turned it in. Anyway, so – So that was kind of, you know, my my first introduction to it. So (laughs) the first time I hear the the words forensic psychology is when I'm reading a James Patterson, Alex Cross novel. (laughs) Wow. So I loved those dumb books back then. So I'm reading that and, you know, Alex Cross's character is a detective. But then he goes and gets a degree in forensic psychology and opens his own private practice. And I'm like— I'm gonna Google forensic psychology. I literally Google forensic psychology programs, and Alliant University comes up. It was from a book from a book series, a fiction book series, is what sparked me to say, "Oh, I wonder if there's." Let me see doctorates in that. Wow. And that was kind of paralleling the time that I was thinking about going to the FBI, and had already been on the job as a police officer for a couple years. So I was, you know, deciding what I was going to do. So I literally just googled the term and found my school. It had a very informal phone interview with a director or the dean, and she was really interested in my law enforcement background and sort of what I wanted to study with that. So, yeah, fast forward, I take a leave of absence from the police department to do our internship, and I just loved that work so much that I was like, oh, man, here I am about to do my background investigation with the FBI, but the company we were working for then offers me a job, and I had to pick between two wonderful things, which was great. But yeah, I realized that my dream of 10 years wasn't what I wanted to do anymore.
0: And it would have been hugely life altering because you would be you go where the FBI tells you to go. Yes. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, no, I'm very, very happy with my decision. It's just kind of an interesting story to see how people get here. And I, I like to tell students or early career psychologists or people thinking about the field is that I love that you're putting so much thought into it. Be flexible around you know along the way because you yeah. never know.
0: Yeah, so. your 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 road can change because I I never knew that I would be ending up this way. And I, you know, and I'm in a position where this path is unfolding in front of me. I'm not associated with the university in that like I'm not doing statistical research, right. which is lovely and elegant, and there are other people out there that are way better than I would ever be. And I'm so grateful that they're out there mm-hmm. because that data is what we can extrapolate theories from and, and approaches right. and treatment planning and program development. Once again, just to build on for people who are listening about to this as a possible career choice, the, the path will continue to unfold. Mm-hmm. My There's a, th- a phenomenon, if you're unfamiliar with this, folks, about psychology programs, is that there's an organization called the American Psychological Association. It's our sort of umbrella parent organization that sets like rules for ethics. And what they do all the – And they're nationwide. They're nationwide. And they have relationships like with the Canadian Psychological Association. And there are some wonderful things about them in that they give great respect and support for people who go into – all different areas of psychology, whether it's organizational psychology or purely clinical work or purely family work or purely work that is strictly working with people on the autism spectrum within this certain parameter. I mean, it's amazing. The flip side of the organization is that they hold a stranglehold on the schools that they will approve. And it's a clumsy process and it's a big political situation here in the U.S. where there are some schools that have APA accreditation that utterly by no means should have APA accreditation because the education level is not good at all right. I feel and we I mean, call
1: them diploma mills we,
0: yeah diploma mills
1: they'll take your money and give you a diploma and
0: and and you'll because you have that APA accreditation, simply because you went to that school, you are Way closer to a paid internship and a high level job than either you or I were, and we right. went to we went to reputable schools, right. but neither one of them APA accredited. And yours, the problem with the a, a forensic program, a purely forensic program, is that it may not ever be right um, APA accredited, right. and yet. So, and the reason I give you this information is because I want anybody who's considering this career to be able to make an informed decision. So even though you're – maybe you're, this is your career right out of undergrad or you're making a big change in midlife, you have to understand that where you can work and live in the U.S. working as a psychologist depends on what kind of school you went to. Yes. So my MFT degree and licensure will transfer to any state almost around the world. My uh, My psychology degree will work almost anywhere in the world except for about probably three-quarters of the states. like and, what's, and the other thing that's really screwy, and I'm being very polite when I say mm-hmm. screwy, is that the amount of licensure and testing that you and I have to go through in the state of California is at least 150% more than what yes. other states have to go to that require APA accreditation. So I'm not telling – I mean, I'm not – Completely dissing the APA. I have worked through my anger towards the organization. You know, my life mostly is on
1: Facebook. Mostly on Facebook, <laughs>
0: ranting. You'll see my rants. You know, it's an example of a class system that needs yeah. to go away, while upholding very high standards for education. You know, I sure. think everybody should be held to those high standards.
1: Well, and actually, my school just got rid of their forensic program. Oh, so right. So there aren't a lot of very specific degrees in forensic psychology left. I think John Jay still has a doctorate in forensic psychology, and there might be some other schools. Um, but, but that schools, doesn't mean
0: you can't go into correct. it. You can get a you can get the doctorate, a in PsyD right. or a PhD
1: in clinical psychology. Exactly, and become a forensic psychologist. It's it's just a specialty, and for a while, my school had that specialty doctorate. So my doctorate says forensic psychology on it. Yours says clinical psychology on it. Right. So um, – and actually a lot of people advised against it to me because they said it pigeonholed me too much. But when I said I don't care, I'm not going to be a psychologist anyway, <laughs> just give me my doctorate, you know, that didn't matter to me. Yeah. Okay. So and, – and it obviously worked out with me going into this field. Anyway. And,
0: and I would say, I, I'm sure that that advice was well-intentioned, but I don't think it's very accurate because you're only pigeonholed as, as much as you allow yourself to be pigeonholed. Right. You know, I do tons of clinical work. I supervise people who do nothing but clinical work. I mentor people that are going in wildly different directions in their mm-hmm. careers. And, mm-hmm. you know, it hasn't pigeonholed me at all.
1: Right. So... As far as getting licensed in California and similar in other states, uh, maybe we should just talk about uh, – we talked about the educational requirement. And then after that, there are
0: – Oh, the length. Like oh, just to – as – let's talk about that. So my master's took a very intense 18 months. I was working full-time and going to school full-time, um, which was challenging. And then the doctorate was uh, an additional three years of academics – Three quarters a year, all of them 10 weeks. So 10 weeks on, three okay. weeks off for three quarters a year and then had summers off, which it was so intense. I you, I needed that summer. Yeah. The summers were like the yeah. – like I need to pull myself back together because it was exhausting.
1: So my program was five years total. You do not I, – I went straight into the doctoral program with just a bachelor's degree. So some people think you have to go get a master's first. You don't have to get a master's first. But my program awarded me a master's after I had defended my dissertation and finished my classes. It's
0: just a non-licensable master's.
1: Got, okay, right? Okay. I think that's the
0: way. That's the way Antioch Santa Barbara is okay. as well.
1: So yeah, my program was five years. I got a master's and doctorate out of it. Yeah, when you're doing your internship, you're earning hours. So a number of hours is <sighs> also hours. what's required to get licensed.
0: Well, back up. You have to have traineeship hours in order to meet your trainee hours before you can even qualify for intern. So didn't you do a – did you have to do a training?
1: practicums. Practicums. That's what we call them.
0: Yeah. So I did, I think, 1,000 hours of practicum while I was in school that third year in order to look good on your CV or resume when you're applying for internships. And practicums
1: are like part-time internships, if you will. So that's weaved in there. And it gives you experience if you want to try different settings – to To do that, um, where, where did you do yours? Or not specifically where, but what sort of populations did you work with? Um, in, the first internship? one
0: was an overlap because there was a doctoral program at where I was doing my MFT training. So it was at Southern California Counseling Center working with families. And then we had some mandated clients that I had a chance to work with, which was a total eye-opener. And then um, I, the greatest one was it doesn't exist anymore. It got absorbed by a, a large contract site called D.D. Hirsch, which is a huge mental health organization here in Southern California. But when I was there, it was called Verdugo Mental Health. And it was working with chronically mentally ill adults who were able to live on their own. And providing them group and doing diagnosis and treatment plans. And that was an amazing, amazing experience. That's where
1: they run the main suicide hotline out of Los Angeles. Yeah. Right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then I worked at Cedar Sinai working on Teen Line, which is a really great organization that we taught and mentored teens to take crisis calls from other teens from around the world. So I was working with these high schoolers, you know, kind of teaching them how to give basic counseling. To people that were um, crisis yeah, intervention. intervention. Mm-hmm. That was amazing. And then what was the other one? Oh, at, I worked at a university, Cal State, um, uh, Channel Islands.
1: Oh, wow. Which was,
0: yeah, these were all real, which is another example, like yeah. all these different pol- yeah. populations you can work with.
1: Yeah, I, I went straight because just wanting to get into forensics, my first practicum was with parole and specifically working with sex offenders.
0: Damn, that's like right in the It the was soup. like
1: jumping in the shark tank for sure. Um, but for me, I was like, I want to sit in a room with them and see what they're all about, see what they have to say. Uh, little did I know, it you know, two years later, I'd totally be loving evaluation and treatment of them. But sort of coming from that cop mindset, I'm like, let me hear it. Let me hear it. Um, so I ran groups and did individual uh, assessment and therapy And then the next year, I actually followed my supervisor from there to his private practice, and he worked in neuropsychology. So it wasn't forensic. We worked out of a pain clinic in Pasadena, and he would essentially do the therapy with a lot of these chronic pain clients that suffered from severe depression. And I would do a lot of the neuropsych testing for them. I did not
0: know that about you, and I'm really jealous because I never – My emphasis on – none of the places I was at um, emphasized testing.
1: Yeah, this was all testing and I loved testing. uh, Okay, and
0: let me me also say that like to anybody who's listening, even if testing is not your thing – Go to a school that gives you really rock solid training and testing. It will it will pay off in the end. It's, had it's the best
1: I, assessment professor. I, she was amazing. I,
0: I did not.
1: <laughs> oh.
0: I did not. And, and it's so funny
1: because I loved testing. I said, this is my strong suit. Put me in a room with someone for two hours. Let me be as nosy as possible. Get all this info out of them and I don't ever have to see them again. And I kind of loved that. Therapy terrified me because I wasn't really? good at it because um, I didn't have strong supervisors in that area. So it you you need to be exposed to stuff to get good at it and I that's what I found out sort of later on. Well, in, you were well, by group. the time that
0: you and I were doing groups together at our internship, you picked up some skills. You were Well, and that, you were good. It,
1: that even evolved to where I loved group. I'm like group is my thing. It's
0: it's really cool.
1: And I thought, oh, individual terrifies me now. You know, so is is and I love individual now. You know, yeah. so it's it's an evolution for sure. But you have to push yourself. Yeah. Into those uncomfortable. Yeah,
0: and areas. we have we have you know we have, quote unquote, colleagues who don't push themselves and are you know willing right. to. Like, it's it's more of a job to them than a career, which you know I don't have any. I shouldn't have any judgment about it. I kind of do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you. What? I know. Hard
0: to believe.
1: Okay, so just let's just name some types of specific jobs for forensic psychologists. Yeah. that And again, obviously, you guys know this if you listen to us, that intersection where the law or the criminal justice system comes into play with psychology.
0: Right. So probably – like I started with one of the most common ones. I mean that is very lucrative if you're good at it, but you better be good at it and you have to have specific skills is um, –
1: are you Liam Neeson from Taken? No. What special skills?
0: skills. <laughs> Custody evaluations. You yeah. know, cu- yeah. And the fascinating thing is that you're looking at a huge tableau of, of individuals. You might be sitting down with six files. You're looking at a complete psychological breakdown and testing of the mom, of the dad, of the other mom, of the other dad, of the all the environmental influences, mm-hmm. you're looking at test results on the kids, you're looking at interviews and transcripts, you may be the one that is conducting those. right? And then you're putting together, you know, you're putting together a presentation that's going to go in front of the court and you better know your stuff because the attorneys on both sides are going to try and tear you down. Yep.
1: Yep. And so that's it, one way. And the center of it is a child that you need to figure out what the best solution it is. It
0: really, it should always be in the best interest of that child.
1: Um, One I find really interesting is psychologists who are consultants for jury selection. Yeah. That's such a fascinating realm. I think it's— I mean, it's fewer and far between, I think, when you start getting to these really like niche specialties. But that's really kind of a cool one to, you know, sit there, consult with the attorneys of like why this person would or wouldn't be a good juror.
0: Exactly. And, you know, the other and the other side of it is that there are psychologists and behavior specialists that are hired when you have a creepy ass defendant. That needs to be coached into being less right. creepy. Like, perfect example, Peterson and the staircase. The staircase. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, coach. Yeah. I think that's your next career.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, I, like, I taught acting for a while. Right. So I, could, <laughs> I think I, I, I'm not sure my moral fiber could stand <laughs> that much flexibility. I, Everyone not,
1: deserves a fair trial. Yeah. Um, obviously, correctional facilities, right. psychologists. So you worked at a county jail. You worked at a state prison. Um, and then there's... Psychologists that work with offenders out in the community. So that's more of the piece that I've done where I've worked with them before they go into prison. I've also worked with them after they get out of prison. So we've co- – wow, we've covered the spectrum.
0: Yeah. The criminal
1: justice system. With yeah. Just our experience.
0: And, you know, our – I had never heard. Did you know of, like, the program that we did in our internship was called Pre-Trial. Right. Did you know of such a thing before not that? Not
1: at all. So, okay,
0: so this was a fascinating phenomenon out here. Well,
1: it's not just out here. It's nationwide because it was federal.
0: Right. Oh, yeah, it's federal. Okay, mm-hmm. so the net is being cast wider and more profoundly in order to catch...
1: Internet offenders.
0: Internet sex offenders, mm-hmm. which is may or may not be someone who has had a contact offense, but mainly is a collector of um, illegal pornography. So we're talking about child porn. Right. And what had happened here in California is some very high profile people were caught in that net with thousands of images and, and thousands of images of really bad, bad stuff. And what happened when the SWAT team descends on the house to go get them is they were blowing their brains out. Right. And it happened about five times in a row, I think, Mm. with some high-profile people all up and down the coast of California. So we were tasked or our internship space was tasked with creating a program that would ease people into the fact that basically, okay, you're going through the trial. You're on a monitor. I mean, these are people that not, are not in jail, but they, their trial is the coming community. up. So they're out on bail. They've
1: never had a criminal history. Right. Good jobs, families, pillars of their community. Right. In a lot of ways. And, yeah, our mission was not to do sex offender treatment because they haven't been found guilty, but to keep them alive, <laughs> to get through trial and to prison, essentially. And
0: to prepare them for what prison was going right. to look like.
1: So it was twofold. Is was this anxiety and depression management and let's prep you for prison.
0: All while doing the stance of not talking about the fact. I mean, the, the elephant in the room for every one of those groups that I facilitated was, dude, you got caught for something. <laughs> we right.
1: can't talk for about it. For tens of thousands of images right. and we of can't, sexual abuse. We can't
0: discuss that because um, it hasn't been adjudicated right. yet.
1: So it was more of just this, almost this um, stress process group, which was weird because you do have this dark cloud over it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that that was really interesting work, and that's what I ended up doing for my private practice.
0: So we did pretrial, and then we also at the internship site did – excuse me – post-incarceration. So talk about that.
1: So essentially um, a big piece of forensic mental health is when someone like – or a, an entity like the court – is mandating someone to treatment. And there's very specific crimes that mandate treatment. Drug offenses mandate substance abuse treatment, maybe domestic violence, anger management treatment. And so in our case, it was sexual offenders that as part of their sentence, they had to agree to come out of prison after they did their time and do sex offender treatment. So that consisted of... Depending on their risk level, and we'll talk about risk assessment later. A class or two a week that was group therapy as well as individual therapy. Again, duration sort of depending on their risk. They could be seen weekly, they could be seen once a quarter. Um, And then we also had polygraph testing. Oh my gosh, right. Um, and then
0: we did the plethysmograph as well um, a couple of times.
1: The penile plethysmograph.
0: Penile plethysmograph.
1: Um, that was for assessment. Yeah, really. Um, Which
0: is not really, really even used anymore. It's been,
1: eh, yeah, it's been exposed it's so much. Old,
0: SVU a, did an episode show, showing uh, so, how to cheat on it.
1: <laughs> so it's kind it of ruin it for
0: everybody, right? It must be true. Uh,
1: yeah, really, it's only um, pretty much used for the violent, the sexually violent predators. It's a really expensive test to have done. So they kind of save it for the worst of the worst.
0: And one of the things uh, in your treatment of post-incarceration was that some of these guys and a few women might be on definite lifetime supervision.
1: Oh, the feds love to give out lifetime supervision, which means they will be on parole and theoretically treatment for the rest of their life.
0: Yeah. Which in some cases, you, you and I would make eye contact in a group and go, thank
1: yeah God no this guy's guy, this guy be in prison for this the guy really life. shouldn't even be out right, <laughs> right there were a right. couple of
0: those that like oh but there those were are tough. others
1: that it was like come on man this is almost making this person you know so emotionally unstable that they're at a higher risk level because they're so unstable because of this lifetime punishment yeah but some other uh jobs in forensic mental health include like I said neuropsychology doing evaluations for civil court or criminal court so The one doctor I worked with, he had a few clients. There was one client, I think she had been um, a medical doctor of some sort, but she fell asleep on an airplane and was in an aisle seat, and they just rammed into her head with the drink cart, and she had terrible brain damage from it.
0: Oh, my gosh. So,
1: of course, there was, you know, civil case, and she had... You know, lost her career because of it. And so we ended up doing the evaluation to determine amount of brain damage for f- for the courts. So that would fall under forensic. Yeah. Just a, an example. Um, also, death penalty evaluations. Oh, right. So um, a lot of that is neuropsych as well. So they do full uh, neuropsychological batteries as well as personality assessments. And seeing if there's anything that could be mitigating to determine whether or not this person gets the death penalty um, based on it being cruel or unusual punishment. Right.
0: To kind of bring it back to your educational path, for those of you that are considering this out there, you can see that there's a lot of different directions for you to go. Ours ended up being specific, but we could have at any moment Branched off, and we even did. Like you moved, you you have moved away. You're a law enforcement psych now. You right. don't do the sex offender treatment anymore. Right. I don't do it anymore because I'm, you know, writing and um, producing this and working in a different capacity with a government agency. Sure. Um, and my, as a result, my expertise in another area of uh, risk evaluation right. has expanded. That's not right. something that I was. I was risk evaluating. I was doing. Excuse me. I was doing risk evaluation of. Um, offenders. Now I'm doing risk evaluation of potential offenders because of their mental illness in the community. Right.
1: right. Violence so violence risk assessment.
0: Yeah, there's so many different ways that you can go. We'll come back to the violence risk assessment in a second. Um, what I wanted to say next was so. Just quickly, want to let you know that the reality in today's world of expensive education is that this is a big investment. There's no other way around it. And I often say, probably incorrectly, but I'll I'll share this because Shiloh and I talk about this, is that if I had known what I know now, I don't know if I would have had the courage to make the decision I made. I'm so glad I did. Right. Like it's the best decision, really top three best decisions of my entire life because Mm -hmm. I love what I do. And I'm at a certain age. I'm not a spring chicken and I owe a lot of money. I make a good living, but balancing that is is really tough because, you know, the for-profit model of schools in the U.S. right now is kind of crazy. Like, up until about 15 years ago, you could go and get into a master's or a doctoral program and, you know, it was affordable. And then once the government started expanding the amount of FAFSA money that you could borrow— all the school tuitions went up to the very top notch of that. I mean, yeah. it's a total – that's Weird. a bit of a scam. It is. But sure. in the long run, if you're a psychologist and you're working in public service, technically both Shiloh and I work in public service, you are eligible for a lot of different programs. But that also means you have to scurry. So while you're right. settling into your, your day job and you know trying to have a life, you might be gathering a bunch of papers and writing essays and applying for grants right. just to wipe off, you know, $10,000 here, yeah. fifteen there.
1: I know people who are essentially feel like they're chained to a job in a prison that they can't stand because their loans are going to be forgiven. Right. So what – you know, what is important to you that you have this job that you can't stand and is terrible and draining the life out of you but – it's going to pay your student loans that you racked up. I don't know. And
0: that being said, I would not trade my prison experience working right. working in prison, not being in prison.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything because it was mm-hmm. incredibly valuable. And I have friends that have worked there for decades. And right. it's you also have to have the right mindset right. for working in prison. But have, if, if you're going there just to get your loans paid off, that's not, not gonna a, gonna that's not happy. a good reason to go work in forensics.
1: Yeah, so we're, we're just saying do your research in all facets. You know, like we said, licensure guidelines. How much is this going to cost? Is it really realistic? Um, I've written some other articles on my career and travel blog about forensic psychology because I got a lot of inquiries with that. Oh, right. So maybe, you know, I'll transfer those to our website, to our blog there, or we can start – we can pen some articles too. But I have one about the real deal about pay for psychologists in California. Yeah. And we'll we'll put those up. So
0: Yeah. I mean there's um... – the the um, the pay scale is wildly different across the country and also impacted – Like so if I could maybe live someplace else that doesn't cost as much to live as Southern California. I love living here. It's a great life and, and this is my home now. But you move to someplace that is not expensive to live mm-hmm. but they will pay you – Less than fifty percent of what you make here, so it's it's kind of crazy. It doesn't. It's not in a way. You it's less respected, yeah, uh, compared to some other careers that should be transferable as far as what your cost of living is. Yeah, but moving on.
1: Moving on. Let's get into a little bit more meat and potatoes about forensic psych.
0: So we've talked about the different areas you could work in, the the kind of education and background you can have. You know, you're basically working in courts. You get really familiar with legal language. um, And it might be legal language like directly related to court cases, as opposed to what Bo Shiloh and I do, where we're talking about charges. um, And we hear police uh, acronyms and short terms, I mean, not short terms, um, shorthand all the time. So, but you are expected to have really specialized knowledge in your area. And the important thing to remember is that in a forensic position, you're going to be held accountable for that. So somebody in private practice n- doesn't necessarily run the risk of getting in trouble if they're off about how they're approaching a treatment plan on a client.
1: Right. Because who's looking at it? Right. If, no I,
0: if, if I'm off on a treatment plan, that's bad. Right. It's very bad.
1: The, the thing that is drilled into you in school and should be beyond is that every document, every note you make... Just envision being cross-examined on the stand about that because everything in forensic psychology has the potential to go to court. Okay? Exactly. <laughs> it's true.
0: So, but that's really interesting too because, you know, we have colleagues that are like, I've had supervisors say, no, keep your notes vague.
1: Oh, yeah. So yeah that, way, have, that
0: way, if you're on, on the stand, you can go, oh, I don't recall.
1: I have colleagues that say that because they're very, they're fearful of, you know, that one in... I don't know, that small possibility that the document goes to court for something. And they put very vague. I've always been super detailed in my notes. I don't know if that's like the cop in me. Like, I got to put all the facts down because I want to remember. And I think it's important Just for my next session to know what we covered. Right. I don't know. I've been super detailed, but I've always had that in my head. If you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And I I get it. Like for big things and doing assessments and if there's suicidal ideation or something like that, you want to have your butt covered.
0: Well, I feel this – my perspective is the same. And the times that I have had – that I've been called on the stand not as an expert witness. There's a difference between an expert witness and a material witness. Is that – so I was being questioned about my notes, and I'll tell you twice, I, the attorney was coming after me because my notes conflicted with another clinician's notes. And the only thing that saved me was that theirs were so vague and mine were so specific.
1: Right, so, and almost how could they conflict if
0: exactly, you know and yeah. that was what I pointed out is you know I didn't I was like, I don't know what you want me to say. everything is in in front of you, yeah, you know this is but
1: that's a good example of how detailed it will get. These attorneys will read every single word right and find something, so. I err on writing too much and then I can refer to my notes if I have to. Right. And be very specific and confident in my answers. Yeah. But so with with forensic mental health, if you just it, I know this is like clear as mud probably from what we've talked about, but you're really looking at evaluations and treatment. Like those are the two areas. So we're going to talk a little bit about forensic evaluations right now yeah. and differences of how does that differ from just a regular clinical evaluation? Right. So,
0: and I'll you know what? Let me take the just regular clinical, and okay. you'll do the forensic since I've, I have more of an emphasis on that. Side.
1: yeah, sounds good. So, just a referral. How do you get a referral to do an evaluation on someone in a general <laughs> clinical setting?
0: Oops. Yeah. So a clinic. So there's two things that can happen. You can be in a a, a clinic or a group practice, uh, like a department of mental health, and you're. In your home area or uh, uh, as a group practice or a single practitioner, a lot of different ways. Like for a, a low income individual who's maybe on Medi-Cal or uh, Medicare, they could be referred to the clinic and they come and you do a regular intake and you take a history. Uh, first, you ask about what the symptoms, what is it that's bringing mm-hmm. them in? And then you can do based on their presenting symptoms, you do an entire interview. So they're self-referred.
1: Right. Or so they like in may, your private practice, a client calls up and says, hey, are you taking new clients?
0: Right. Exactly. And they find <laughs> us similar. through advertising. There's there's mm-hmm. a, two big databases. One is called Psychology Today. It's a magazine, but it also has a therapist directory.
1: Right, for those of you out
0: there who are ever looking for a counselor. You That's know,
1: how I found my psychologist? Yeah.
0: You just type the zip code in. And then there's another one called Yeah Good Therapy that does the same thing. And they will look and see if they like your profile, if they like what you say about the kind of work you do. So they're self-referred. And I – you know, in my private practice, I specialize a lot with anxiety disorders and life transition. And basically – I mean as weird as it sounds, it's identity development. People who Mm -hmm. are going through sort of that major stages of adult maturity and evolution where they realize – I'm not really sure I'm doing what I want to do. I'm not really sure I am living the life I want to live. And, you know, we call it like the... Um,
1: worried well. The
0: worried well in right. many cases. although, And that's not to say that private practice can't have, you know, really significant issues that you deal with like right. bipolar disorder or right. even mild psychosis.
1: But there's there's a niche for everything. right? So forensically, the way that we get referrals is usually... It's court-mandated, so there's a court giving an order to someone that they have to get into therapy. So it it might be tasked with the individual person to call up and find their own therapy. But more often than not, there's some sort of – Either a parole or probation department attached to helping them find that or their attorney. Right. So like in my private practice working with the pretrial offenders, usually it's an attorney that will call me and say, hey, we hear you specialize in this. I want my client to get into therapy before their trial. Do you take someone? Um, Post-incarceration, a lot of parole and probation departments Contract with specific companies like where we did our internship, so that client doesn't get a choice. They go where parole tells them where to go, yeah. and that would be where. We're and
0: there going. are and there are consequences,
1: right? Like if they're oh, sure. if they're
0: mandated clients, there are consequences to their not being compliant right. with the they treatment. They go
1: back to prison. They're violating Whereas, probation,
0: right? Whereas in my case, it's any people can terminate at any time, and they'll just either give you a call or they won't show up. Yep. But then there are sometimes that are people are in therapy for years because and I use the metaphor that, you know, therapy if you're really into it and you're really, you know, working on becoming a different version of yourself it's peeling an onion you know you get one layer you think oh well this is what i came to therapy for and then you find oh wow there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on that really needs to be addressed yeah doesn't mean you know people need to be in therapy forever but i think i think everybody could benefit from sure you know a handful of sessions of sure getting some insight
1: next who is the client it's kind of easy in your case
0: right in my case the client being assessed is the person who walked through the door
1: yeah yeah, for you for it's different. For forensic, the client is actually the referring person. So it's either probation or parole or it's the attorney. Right. The actual client that's sitting in the chair, if you will, is actually doesn't have the confidentiality, doesn't have the rights, doesn't have the access to their mental health records and doesn't get a say so in a lot of it. So they're, they're what I used to say were the secondary client, um, but if you do a report, if you um, do an evaluation or notes or any of that, the probation or parole department in this example actually has legal ownership over those. So there were times working in that, that area and that, that field where clients would say, I want a copy of my chart. Well, it doesn't belong to you. I have to ask your probation officer if I can release some of it to you, which sounds so odd, right? You think of the client just being able to have access to your own stuff. Um, There's even times that I've done reports uh, pre-trial to where I put on the top of the report, it's actually not recommended that this is even shown to the client or his family. It just goes to the attorney because there's so much damaging stuff in there.
0: Right, and yet even that is not going to keep it the information from getting to them because some their attorney is going to tell them, yeah, you really you your report was bad.
1: Right. You know right. so
0: on one side, you may never have to see that person again if it's a one one off evaluation, right. or like it was at our internship where we were doing we were doing updates to parole and probation on a regular basis and then we had to sit with them in the room.
1: Yeah, and and
0: deal with yeah. that, which that was that was, that was something. I, it was intense. Yeah, because
1: there's if you read a psychological evaluation about yourself, that's tough to read. Yeah, you know that that's really impacting material. But because we're going to be honest, obviously, and it, it could be hurtful.
0: And that's something that a, a on my side, a clinical referral would likely never have to. Sure. Experience.
1: Sure. Um, So confidentiality, I kind of touched on a little bit, but in the clinical setting, what would confidentiality look like? So
0: the the concept of confidentiality in a a private setting or even in an agency setting, it it actually is the same thing, is that you have the right to have this therapeutic relationship with a clinician and everything that is said, with certain exceptions, is confidential. So, excuse me, if you're talking about you know, you're so frustrated and you just like, oh, God, what's a good example? And then you like, man, you're so mad. You just like to punch a wall or you'd like, you know, I, I think about really spanking my kids really hard. I think about it. right? So that's very different. like they, these are confidential things. But the exceptions in the state of California, because we have one that's specifically here, is that if in the course of me providing services to somebody, they say or they indicate or I Extrapolate or interpret that they are a danger to themselves, uh, with, and that concludes suicidality or right. just great bodily harm, right. or they're a harm to someone else, right. or they are gravely disabled, which means they are unable to care for themselves in a meaningful fashion that would pre- preserve their life. Mm-hmm. Then that I can break confidentiality for those and get trainings. someone
1: else involved to I,
0: exactly I can help call nine one one or I can write the hold myself here mm-hmm. at the agency. Where it extends is if somebody was to tell me in the process of therapy, yeah, I've got this little kink. You know, every once in a while, I look at some child porn. It's like in the state of California, that's an automatic. Right, we have to report it. A lot of us have a problem with that because you and I know that it's a lot more complex than that, and it might. This person actually, for one thing, if they're in therapy, they're probably are might be willing to get some treatment for something like this, this. right? But immediately reporting it is going to destroy the therapeutic relationship, yeah, and that's going to go in a completely different direction. And then the other that are that are related to it, if. You know, a person came in and admitted that they were hurting their children. That's a mandated report. I have to report that. If a guy came in and said he got so mad at his elderly father that he slapped him around. Right. The guy, if his father's over 65, I'm going to report that.
1: So child abuse and elder abuse.
0: And it even extends to if someone came into my office and said, I'm sorry, I'm so tired. I was up all night because my neighbor was wailing on his kids. You know, I could tell he was just spanking them and slapping them around. I have to report that. Yeah. I don't have to report that you gave me that information, but I had and you can refuse to give me the information about your neighbor.
1: Sure, if you have enough identifying information.
0: Like if I have the address and I know you're in 305 and they're in 307. Right. I can report that. Right. So So those are confidentiality. If
1: you go and get a therapist on your own, those are the areas where confidentiality would have to be broken. It, that remains true in the forensic setting as well. Obviously, that's going to extend to everyone. But in the forensic setting, I always explained it to clients like this. <laughs> Confidential- confidentiality doesn't really exist between us. If someone tries to walk in off the street and get your records, I'm not going to give it to them. But it's sort of a three-way confidentiality. I, You sign paperwork saying that as a part of being mandated to come here and agreeing to treatment, that you agree that your other party, being an attorney or parole agent or whatever, There's actually a three-way confidentiality between the three of us. So that means if they tell me something in a session that um, raises my concern for risk or they're talking about like, yeah, I moved and I didn't tell my parole agent, I can then let the parole agent know, hey, so-and-so is not living where he said he's living. (laughs) This is something, you know, that it seems risky to me. It might increase his risk for impulsivity, blah, 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 blah. You might want to check that out. So, So
0: even though you might discern that some things are not as important as others, it's still not protected.
1: Correct. So, I'm not going to say everything in a session because parole agents don't want to hear everything that happens in a psychology session or psychological session, um, therapy session. But if there are some important things, I can divulge that. So, um, yeah. So, those are some big, basic differences between just clinical and forensic. Evaluations and/or treatment. I mean, yeah. We Kind of talk about overlapping. And, and
0: like we said, that there are people. You have your private practice. I have mine, and your work is slightly different from mine at, the, at your agency. So we we slip back and forth right. depending on what our role is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so we're going to switch now to cases, starting with how we got here in the first. The whole concept of forensic psychology becoming a part of the legal process has had an evolution uh, over the last few hundred years or last hundred years, but certainly for a much longer period, going back to even uh, what we call legal proceedings in the Greek and Roman times. So, but the concept that got really solidified was an English treatise in 1581 that stated if a madman or a natural fool or a lunatic in the time of his lunacy, kill someone, they basically can't be held accountable. So, I I mean... I love
1: all that wording. I
0: know. And I'm speaking... I was actually doing non-natural. I was speaking it very slowly because I think it's important what they're saying there is that for that time, that's a pretty advanced concept of saying, no, this person is not in their right mind. Therefore, they are not responsible. So... That's in 1581. Now, let's go fast forward about 275 years to uh, what year was Monoton? Monoton was 1843. So, in 1843, a case occurred in Great Britain. This was at the time when Great Britain and uh, Scotland had come together for a couple hundred years at, under the UK. Um, there was a lot of strife. And Monoton was a Scottish woodcutter. So, Monoton became convinced in his own mental processes that the prime minister of England at that time was messing with his stuff he was affecting his personal relationships he was affecting his finances he was affecting his work interestingly enough just sidebar that's what coming forward in today's our work is delusion right. you know this guy in the that year was having a delusion. He probably was schizophrenic. Right, psychotic. So he became so convinced that this was going on that he was going to take action against the prime minister. And in his attempt to assassinate the prime minister, he actually shot the secretary, the assistant to the prime minister in the back of the head, killing him. So during his trial... Nine witnesses testified to the fact that he was insane. And probably these were people that maybe they weren't so great in jury selection. And these were probably people that knew him, knew he was completely crazy. But he was acquitted probably the first time that the phrase was used as not guilty by reason of insanity, which we shortened to NGI. So interestingly enough, the Minotan rule was basically in place for 200 years. And it's only recently that we've started to question now. Now, that being said, Queen Victoria was not having it. She said (laughs) that was way, you know, it was personal to her because obviously it's the prime minister. Right. And she understood the political ramifications even at that time. Like, oh, someone's going to be able to say they're crazy and prove that they're crazy or act crazy and get away with crimes. So she put stipulations on it that really set up the parameters of, okay, we're going to assume that this – subject is innocent but we're going to look at everything. We're going to look at the behavior, we're going to look at the charges. Did he m- know what he was doing at the time versus he knew what he was doing but he chose to do it anyway for moral purposes, right. which is actually if you anybody is out there has ever seen probably the only Matthew McConaughey movie I really like is um A Time to Kill.
1: Oh yeah. That's what yeah. that
0: whole Premise is based on right. is this person commits a crime, and then you get to understand why this grieving father went and committed right. the crime that he did. Right. So that's so the so essentially, non-real.
1: it's it's are they able to determine right from wrong, and at what degree? W-
0: Correct. Except it's so complex. Right, yes, right. they can. Because
1: yes, in their own head, they in do. their own hand
0: their own head, they can. Yeah. But what does that actually mean? Right. And that okay. was my phone dropping. Sorry, folks.
1: What state of mind are they
0: in? So now we come really far far forward to 1981, and probably the biggest case that we've seen of this, or the one that's had the most impact, was John Hinckley. Right. So in 1981, John Hinckley Jr. was uh, a young man who became obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster, and in his mind he had come to the conclusion the only way he was really going to be able to get her into his life in a meaningful fashion was to prove to her by a large act that they were meant to be together. I mean, what the meme has been boiled down to is, oh, I did it to impress her. But Mm -hmm. it really was much Mm -hmm. bigger than that, a much more solid and profound delusion. And so he attempted to assassinate the president.
1: Isn't it interesting how those two kind of parallel, assassinating a— High-ranking figure?
0: Yeah, about as high as you can yeah. go. And yeah. then look at what happened to Gabby Giffords right. with her shooter, who I, I don't even like to use their name when right. it's this. But Gabby Giffords was the victim of a shooter who was clearly, clearly mentally ill. Now, if that's someone – I mean that's another confusing version of the monotone Rule because this guy was clearly had a long-term history of mental illness. Mm-hmm. But he knew what he was doing. But he felt like it was the right thing to do. Right. So complex, very yes. complex.
1: And it, I think the two differentiations and and concepts that people think about when they hear. So there's not guilty by reason of insanity. So that's really looking at the crime and state of mind at that time. And then there's competency to stand trial, which is the state of mind to be able to go through a trial. And those are two completely totally different, different things, things. Yeah. That – forensic psychologists can have completely different expertise in.
0: Which in, and in my work that I do, uh, I have been in the position of being on the stand and attempting to, on the behalf of a government agency and on behalf of the safety of the community, I have been a witness to attempt to have individuals conserved, which means their rights are taken away from them. They, because of their mental capacity, need to be placed in an environment that where they are not a danger to themselves and they're not a danger to the community. And what's frustrating is that even people who are profoundly mentally ill, when motivated, can still hold it together for periods of time. And sometimes that period of time is 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's an hour and a half. And the judge, because of a ruling here in California, which is what's called the Sanchez hearsay ruling, is the judge only wants to look at, I want to know what I'm looking at right now. This person looks fine. Mm -hmm. And we have to sit there and bolster a case of the minute this person leaves this courtroom, He's going to begin engaging in the same behaviors that he did in the past, which endangered the right. community.
1: Right. It's a lot to look at, though. It's a lot. Okay. So another area, just we want to touch on one more specific forensic psychology um, means of doing an evaluation. So we picked sexually violent predator right. assessments. So SVPs. SVPs. So this is... Specific to California and a handful of other states, but also federally, you can be a sexually violent predator. So, as you know, you can be arrested for an offense in a state, a city, but the state prosecutes you. Or federally, and then the federal government prosecutes you. So, you go through whichever channel of criminal justice system. But the feds have a SVP Law and then California has an SVP law. And what it essentially means is that that person is a sexually violent predator and then they are incarcerated indefinitely. So forensic psychologists are brought in to do these evaluations to essentially say whether or not this person's rights should be taken away for the rest of their life after they finish a sentence. So the way this is done is that people in California – People convicted of sexual offenses before they're about to get out and finish their offense—they committed a rape—and then they're about to be paroled. What the state will do is send in two evaluators separately to evaluate them and do this process that I'm going to tell you about. So, the the prisoner sits down with each of these psychologists, goes through their evaluations. The psychologist makes a determination based on a certain criteria. Those both have to either be yays or nays to either let out or keep in for further evaluation. If they – one's a yay, one's a nay, (laughs) then they bring in two more evaluators. Great. So, you know, obviously there's going to be differences of opinion, especially with, you know, some offenses that aren't so clear cut and mental health disorders that aren't so clear cut.
0: And to add to that, and you, you know more about this than I do, but I, it's important to remember that those evaluators are using instruments. They're using the assessment same – tools. Right. Sure. They're using the same assessment tools. They may be slightly interpreting them differently or they're inter- – I'm sorry. They're interpreting the outcomes mm-hmm. differently or the same, right?
1: Right. Right. Ideally, these assessments have – good inter-rater reliability and they should be getting generally the same scores on them um, even though they're subjective to to a point. Um, But yeah, you can have a difference of opinion. So let's say both psychologists say, no, he does not meet the criteria for an SVP, then the person would be released and just do their parole and their treatment as normal. If both psychologists say, yes, he does meet the criteria – he doesn't then get thrown into uh, a correctional facility for the rest of his life. That's That onus is actually not on the psychologist. There's actually a jury trial that happens now to determine if that's enough. So the psychologist may testify – well, will testify uh, at that jury trial to talk about their evaluation and their rationale and their opinion. Um, but it's actually a jury that ends up sending people away for the rest of their lives. So – In California, sexually violent predator means a person who has been convicted of a sexually violent offense against one or more victims. So it only has to be one. used to be multiple, but now it's just one. And who has a diagnosed mental disorder that makes the person a danger to the health and safety of others in that it is likely that he or she will engage in sexually violent criminal behavior. So essentially, criteria one – have they committed offense against one person? That's why all of those people get evaluated because yes, obviously, that's why they're in prison. Two, do they have a diagnosed mental disorder and then does that mental disorder make them a continued danger? So the way that they do that is through interview, extensive interview, and then the assessment tools you're talking about that basically evaluate risk for future uh, sexual offending. And then uh, determination is, is made from there. They look at a couple other things, like predatory behavior, um, what the diagnosed mental disorder is, um, because it should be something that relates to it, like pedophilia. If someone is diagnosed with pedophilia, we know that's a pervasive disorder that this person is going to carry with them for the rest of their life. It's not like you say, oh, they're diagnosed with ADHD. Oh, there's a mental disorder. It has to be related to sexual offending, usually. So there's been some interesting... Debates back and forth, um, but the, the sexually violent offense does have to be there. There's a, a handful of offenses of what it needs to be. So generally, you know, the rapes, the um, the crimes against children, um, those that involve kidnapping, kidnapping. Right? yeah, yeah. So there's there's a bunch of rules and criteria and standard standardization of assessments that have to be used, and this is all governed through um, the state of California. But it's really interesting work. I, I Before I was licensed, I was essentially a, a ghostwriter for a psychologist that was doing this. And so I was taking his data and putting all the reports together and just really doing the writing. But it was such wonderful experience getting to know um, this. And I remember when we were in internship, we had a former director of our internship who was doing these evaluations come talk to oh, us. Oh, right.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I was him. like
1: – oh, my God, I want to do that. Again, because it sort of fed the assessment part that I really love, plus it paid amazing. Yeah. Um, now they're kind of weaning off this contract a little bit more and there's not as many to do. But it's interesting. I've, I've also treated these folks on the post-incarceration end um, because some do get out. And the majority of them get out through fighting the legal system Rather than completing all their treatment, because once they go into this treatment program for an indeterminate amount of time, there are, I think, five or six phases of treatment they have to go through in order to be released. Now they, they are also, heavily monitored, afterwards. and they have to admit guilt, oh, right? Yes.
0: So, yeah. isn't the that would be a real dividing point between those two sections of that population? Would be the people who were going to fight it. Are fighting it on the premise that they are not guilty of what they've been charged of, right?
1: Usually, well, or not fighting the sentence. Yeah, it's loopholes, it's sentences, okay. it's all kinds of things. Okay, um, it's not necessarily that it's dividing them in, in guilt or innocence, but um, but yeah, there's there's very few that get out by completing treatment. Majority of them, there's some legal loophole they get out. But they they end up being monitored very heavily, lots of treatment, ankle monitors, um, surveillance. They will, you know, allow a guy to live in a community and take the bus. This is after years of being out. He finally gets to take a bus. He doesn't have to have a driver with him. And they'll plant a nice, you know, good-looking female undercover agent on that bus and see if he goes and talks to her because one of his restrictions might be you're not allowed to talk to women yeah and i've seen People go back for scooting on up over to that young lady on the bus.
0: Which is a very controversial episode of SVU (laughs) with Chris Maloney. (laughs) Sorry, we have to always go back to SVU. Then this one was before I was in the field. But I remember it because um, I think I saw it in rerun during our internship. Oh, really? Where there's a sex offender – that is getting released from prison that everybody's really worried about, but there's no way to stop him from being released. So the whole question is, is Chris Maloney, Chris Maloney goes in, love Chris Maloney, and he's playing another parolee in the same apartment building and he's goading him into, do you want to, should we do this? And I'm into this. I mean, they were both into like the same kind of woman. And then the whole moral question was, well,
1: you Entrapment set him up, did him you
0: entrap him? him? Yeah. And the, the guy ends up doing something. I mean, he's he was. It turns out that he. It's for the benefit of the storyline. He was on the edge anyway. Probably would have offended. I mean, it was a kind of a squeegee episode where you walked yeah. away going. Ugh. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah. That, those are all interesting concepts around all of this, but. Yeah. Anyway, that that's a big area. It's a really interesting area in forensic psychology, especially like here in California, because we do have that where we put people away forever. And some people say, I'm not doing the treatment program. I'll sit in here forever and live the rest of my life here. So. And
0: that's a whole other – that's probably another episode we should talk about is sort of yeah. the prison mindset. We could yeah. talk about that with our experience as Definitely. well. So there are some other cases that I'm just going to run through really quick that I think are very interesting. If anyone's interested in them, we will be covering them in some way at some point. Uh, during our episodes, because we're planning on being here for a long time.
1: Forever. Forever.
0: But um, if you're interested in reading, you know, Crime Library, their Wikipedia pages are really interesting about some of the more uh, prominent cases that did involve psychological profiles, whether or not the profiles were developed by a forensic psychologist or a profiler- with the FBI or a combination of the two. So we're looking at – I'm not going to say that these cases were cracked, but understanding the behaviors and the predatory patterns of these uh, criminals was very important. So Ted Bundy, yeah. we got Zach Efron is playing Ted Bundy probably – sexualizing him a little bit I'm not saying that Zach Efron is doing that I think the production uh, right. is sexualizing him
1: yeah it's a huge huge source of debate right now right um, on social media
0: John Wayne Gacy uh, mm-hmm. that was probably more of a fluke but there were there were forensics involved in trying to figure out what was going on with all these people the young men disappearing uh, who else Eileen Warnos, mm-hmm. which is another fascinating one um, that was so difficult from a profiling st- Standpoint because we didn't have.
1: There's no profile for female serial killers.
0: But they made her into one, and that's still a big debate in right. some of the productions now. It's like, was she really? You know, does she meet these criteria? Because if you look at it from a gendered model, like, mm-hmm. did the media just want to generate that? Like, this is the this is the first female serial killer, right? No, probably not. We have a lot of others, like we have black widow killers that probably would fit that character, that description better.
1: Well, she I I mean, by the definition we gave last time we were here, it's such a vague definition of serial killer. For sure, she fits it. Um, But female offenders, we should do a whole episode on them as well, because there's just such little data that it's even hard to determine risk and treatment planning for them. And it's... All of our information is about men.
0: Yeah. But lots of stuff, lots of interesting stuff to talk about. I hope to hell we have not bored the hell out of you. This we'll, is
1: a big nerd alert. It was a big uh, nerd alert. Well, maybe <laughs> that's we'll, we'll
0: put nerd alert on the posting of the episode. <laughs> and I'll put some – I'll see if I can find some public domain educational film music in it to – Make there it you funny. Go. We'll see. But what we'll do
1: is we'll I'll, – I'll take some of my articles about fr- just kind of forensic psych 101 stuff. I'll put them up on the blog. Maybe we can write some more as we go along. If you have specific inquiries or questions, keep shooting them our way. Yeah. Um, we love to DM you back, and we've had, you know, such lovely interactions with listeners just by talking about this. And I love feeling their excitement yeah. for starting into this field. Um, because and from as
0: far away as like Finland, like we've got somebody oh, yeah. that was, oh, yeah. you know, tweeting at us from other countries. This is so exciting.
1: Right, right. So it's I, – I love that. I love talking to people who are thinking of getting into this work because then we just get to share our experience. Right.
0: So it wasn't a mini episode, but um, – <laughs> We
1: tried. We, we tried. Really tried.
0: So thanks so much, everyone. We will be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Please check out – the Ron Burgundy podcast today, uh, which is – what it today is? Today's Thursday. Yeah, so today's by the time you seven, get this
1: – So it debuted today. But it, he's going to take on a different topic every episode, and I cannot wait it's to hear the rest funny. of it. Yeah. It's just – it's great. So.
0: If you get a chance, run over to iTunes and give us a rating. It really helps us. The podcast is taking off in ways that we were not expecting and your support is going to help us really explore some new avenues. We can't wait for a crossover this summer at the True Crime Podcast Festival with our friends over at Getting Off Podcast. We're really excited about that. We'll probably be scheduling a live broadcast at some point over that weekend.
1: We're going to try and make it happen one way or another.
0: Yeah, one way or another. And look for us on Instagram at la Not so pod.
1: Instagram is L.A. Not So Podcast and Twitter is L.A. Not So Pod. We had to cut that one a little shorter. Okay. So,
0: but once again, if you could run over and give us a couple of stars, that would be great. Oh, and
1: more than a couple. We don't want two.
0: Re- yeah, we'd actually like <laughs> we'd like all the top. Our five. average is
1: five. Our average is actually five right oh, now. Oh, that's great. So okay. I, I looked recently, but we love to read actual reviews. Um, so if you guys have some thoughts about it, put it down in words on iTunes. That'd be awesome.
0: It really helps, and we will see you next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. bye
1: Bye. As we mentioned before, we are pleased to announce that we will be making an appearance at the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago in July 2019.
0: The True Crime Podcast Festival is going to be all about giving you access to your favorite true crime podcasts and interacting with your favorite hosts in face-to-face and forum meetings. There will be panel discussions, live tapings, and of course, meet and greet opportunities with yours truly.
1: Some of your other favorites will be there like Swindled, Wine and Crime, The Fall Line, Canadian True Crime, and the Paranormal Chicks.
0: For more information or to purchase tickets, go to tcfp2019.com and be sure to mention LA Not So Confidential when you fill out registration information for your tickets.
1: We'll see you there at LA Not So Confidential.